first, let's talk about the breaking news at this hour. The Supreme Court of Canada now declining to hear that appeal against the Trans Mountain Pipeline that had been filed by B.C. First Nations. Let's check in now with Sonia first to know she's the Green Party MLA for the Cowichan Valley. She's running for the leadership of the BC Green Party. She's opposed to the pipeline project. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Sonia, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, your thoughts on this ruling. This is obviously a setback and a, and a disappointment for the people who oppose this pipeline. What do you think? Yeah, exactly that. I, I expect that the, the First Nations who were appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada are, are quite disappointed and uh, unhappy with this ruling. But I think the bigger question for all of us to be considering in this is the extent to which governments uh, around the world, but here in Canada, continue to subsidize the oil and gas industry uh, when what we should be doing is building the economy of the future, focusing on the transition to clean energy and recognizing that we owe a debt to future generations and that debt cannot be paid to them by subsidizing the oil and gas industry. Okay, well, I, I suppose that's a, a political issue or a policy fight that I'm, I know you will be engaged with going forward. But in, in terms of this, this court ruling today and this legal setback on a legal point of law, is this the end of the road now for the fight against this pipeline? Is there any way to stop it? Well, I mean, when you, it is a political question because the government of Canada bought this pipeline with taxpayer money. And right. it's up to taxpayers and citizens to determine whether they're okay with that at this point. And I think that, uh, you know, a, a great number of Canadians are not okay with the extent to which uh, the oil and gas industry is subsidized in this country. And a $4.5 billion buyout of a pipeline from a private company is the wrong direction to be going at a time when we absolutely need to be transitioning. Can the project be stopped now? I mean, will you continue to oppose it and fight it? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that bad projects... <laughs> don't deserve to be uh, continued. I, I would say that there's a, a, a financial reality. Uh, the, the exporting of uh, diluted bitumen off the coast is is not a, a good economic plan for this country. And I think that when you look at oil and gas prices over the last uh, months and years, uh, it's becoming clear that this is not an economically uh, smart way to um, to look at the future economy for this country. So, you know, it, I would not say that the, 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 the battle against this project is over, but I would also say that, you know, the cards are stacked up against it. Speaking to Green Party MLA, Sonia Firstenau, she is running for the leadership of, of the party. When you take a look at the court rule, the court case that had been filed by the, these First Nations in BC opposed to this uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline project, they talked about the environmental jeopardy posed by the project. Mm -hmm. They talk about the threat to their drinking water, uh, the threat to orc the orca population in our coast and our oceans in the event of a spill. But obviously the, the highest court in the country, the Supreme Court of Canada, was not convinced to, to hear that argument. What, what would you say about that as someone who is, is concerned about the, the environmental dangers of the project that the highest court now doesn't, doesn't want to hear that argument? Yeah, I, I mean, those risks don't go away. And as we know, there was very recently a spill on the Trans Mountain Pipeline um, that uh, is a concern for groundwater contamination. 
um, I would say that, you know, the, the risk to the endangered orca doesn't go away. I think we have to look long and hard at the kinds of decisions we're making uh, in, in different levels of government and recognize that these risks are very real and that the, the danger and impact from, from spills and from uh, increased tanker traffic and, you know, from a worst-case scenario, an ocean spill uh, remains and okay. that we have to wrestle with how serious those risks are. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Sonia Firstenau. She's a Green Party MLA. She's running for the leadership of the party. Let's get the other side of it now. Stuart Muir is with ResourceWorks. He supports the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Stuart, thank you for coming on. You must be pleased at, at this uh, ruling, uh, this decision by the Supreme Court this morning. Is this the end of the fight now? Is this, are you guys ready to declare victory and the pipe goes in the ground now? Well, it's a fact that there's no further outstanding legal challenges associated with yeah. the project. So at this point, for a new one to be mounted, exactly what the legal strategy would be given today's outcome is, is very hard to say. So I think it's safe to say that on the legal front, this, this is done. So, okay, so it's done. I don't know. I've heard that said before. I get deja vu when I hear that. You know, I've, I've heard court yeah. rulings. Every time, this, this, the, uh, the people who support this pipeline seem to always win in court, or almost always. And well, every well, time they win, they say it's, yeah. it's game over and the pipe's going in the ground now. Uh, yes, but here's here's the difference. Yeah. In the past, there's always been another one in the chamber, so to speak. This yeah. time, there's nothing more. It can take a long time to develop the legal briefs and raise the money and all that stuff. There's nothing that that we're aware of, anyways. That's that's and nor is there anywhere where it can go. We've gone to the highest court of the land. It has spoken. Okay, you just heard from Green Party MLA Sonia Firstenau, who's poised to become the, that leader of the party there shortly. Uh, and, and she says the fight's not over. She's still worried about the potential for contamination of water and a, sp a spill into the ocean. What are your thoughts on How do you respond to that? Well, the, the project's underway. I think this is really a pipeline that because of the transparency, the freedom, the access to courts by all kinds of groups over the last eight years, they've been able to turn over every rock, ask every question. As a result of that, there's been something like, I've stopped counting almost, but probably 170, 180 conditions to do with environmental safety that have been applied to not only the pipeline on the ground, but also shipping the product of the pipeline through the Salish Sea out to the Pacific and to markets. So that's because of the pressure. And we have this open society. We have, we have groups that can raise questions. Other countries don't have that. Because of this, because of this freedom, we've now got, I would say, and I would invite anyone to challenge me on this, the best, safest pipeline that's ever been built anywhere that's being built right now here in the West. Okay, even though we just had a spill there a couple of weeks ago on the trans well, it was in a contained area. Yeah. It, was, it was in an area that was engineered for the possibility of spills. It wasn't in the you know, pristine wilderness. They, they did all the right things to make sure it was you know, dealt with quickly. That's how it's supposed to work. And it did work that way. Okay, last and, question. You know, I think right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Last question I got for you is: you constantly hear from critics of the project who question the economics of it, who take a look at oil prices, who take a look at uh, um, flat oil demand, and just wonder if if taxpayers have bought um, a, a, a white elephant here that is not going to make money. It's going to be a disaster for Canadian taxpayers. What What are your thoughts on the kind of the viability and the potential success of this project? Well, let's just look at the two, two proof points. One, in the first several months of this year, 
I look at the Stats Canada figures on the export of heavy oil from Burnaby to markets in Asia. It fetched the price of $47 Canadian per barrel equivalent. And uh, yesterday, a ship left from Burnaby for Irving Oil Refinery, the biggest refinery in Canada on the the East Coast. It's going to go through the Panama Canal. I know it's crazy. It should be going by pipeline, but we don't have the capacity. That's probably got... I would estimate at least $40 million worth of oil on board. It's going to be refined into gas products to create revenue for Canada, to, to let drivers in uh, the maritime provinces get around. And, and that's because it's economically viable. That's why these things are happening. Stuart, thank you for coming on. Thanks. All right, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Alan Mullen. He is the Chief of Staff to BC Speaker Daryl Plekis at the BC Legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk about a new report that you have written and has now been kind of widely leaked around. And I've got a copy and a lot of other news organizations got a copy. And this was a review that you did on security services at, at the BC Legislature. And tell me about what you found out in this report. Because you're saying that taxpayer, BC taxpayers could save a lot of money here um, if they follow the recommendations on, in, in this report. You're saying we're basically spending too much money on security at the legislature, correct? Yeah, correct, and and too much money in, in sort of perhaps the wrong ways. Uh, so this review is a review of the Sergeant-at-Arms Department uh, and proposals for reform commissioned by Speaker Daryl Plekis. Uh, so I went on a... On a you know, a cross-country tour and a cross-continent tour to uh, two Canadian sites and seven U.S. sites to see uh, what they do, what their best practices are. Which attracted are. some controversy at the time, I recall, because people were saying that that cost, how much did it cost? Uh, $13,000. $13,000. And I remember some people were take, were taking a few cracks at you, saying, hey, you got, I thought you guys were supposed to be cleaning up all the waste in this place, and here you are spending $13,000 on a tour. Right. How do you defend yourself on that? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to remember that the speaker is an academic, and it, it is a common practice in academia to to do site visits as part of a, an, an academic review. Uh, and there's a big difference to talking to somebody via telephone or email or or even Skype and saying, "Tell me about your your site," uh, versus going and seeing what their their footprint is, how they do business on a daily basis. All right. So you went around to these other places and see how they did security. That's is, right. Is, okay, so I actually think $13,000 is not relatively that much. It probably would have cost a lot more money to get someone else to, like, you know, bring in an accounting company to do it or something. Yeah, and I did talk to, to you know, some accounting firms and universities to see what those costs would be, and they were, they were uh, you know, a lot higher. So I, okay. th I think it is very justifiable. Uh, you know, I drove as opposed to fly. I, I, I didn't put in some expenses. So I think the 13000 I mean, if anybody looks at this report, what they're getting for 13000 I think the average taxpayer will be okay with Okay, it. let's find out what you found. What did you find out? Tell me. Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, the, you know, there's some main recommendations. One is the sergeant at arms position, uh, him, itself. What I found in a lot of jurisdictions around North America is the sergeant at arms is primarily ceremonial, i.e., they carry the mace, uh, they perform, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies type functions at government house, etc. And then you've got a director of security who's responsible for the safety and security of the building. That seems to work really well in a lot of other jurisdictions. How do we do it here? 
Uh, well, it would be very simple to do it here. You would say you just separate. Well, how do we do it now? You you could just separate the two positions and you would say, because currently we don't have a sergeant at arms. We've got an acting sergeant at arms. Yeah. Uh, this report has been given to Lamsey. Lamsey has struck a committee uh, to review the report and to review that sergeant at arms department. One of my recommendations also is that the assembly engage an external organizational consultant to assist the department and help implement these recommendations, which I believe that that uh, committee is going to be doing. Uh, I'm not sure who the consultant will be, but I know they're moving forward on that. So that's the best way to get this done. Okay, how much do we pay the sergeant at arms in British Columbia right now? Well, the 2018-2019 salary for the Sergeant at Arms uh, was $226,467, uh, which is a lot more than any jurisdiction across the country. Uh, really? And to put it in That's the highest in Canada? That is the highest in Canada, and to put it in that perspective... That figures. It does figure, that, that figure. It? It's, it's not surprising. Of course it's the highest in Canada. And, and to, to put it in perspective even further... That was 2018, 226,467 versus 10 years earlier in 2008, it was 93,000. 90,000. That's a lot of raises. That's, that's some big, that's some big hefty raises. What was going on there? This is like, wasn't this when the, these guys were approving each other's raises? Well, and they, that, that's the stuff that you, you blew the lid off of earlier. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you had, it, and that's the, that's what this report speaks to. We're not speaking about, or I'm not speaking about, you know, the boots on the ground or the lapse officers who we have a tremendous team here. I'm talking about there was no leadership in that department. Uh, you had people running roughshod over the, the, the public purse, you know, going from 93 3,000 to 226,000. That is the problem. Yeah. The problem is the leadership, the management, the, the direction that that department was being taken in, and not the boots on the ground. And I want to make that really clear. Okay, let's talk about the security they have at the legislature now. And security is important Absolutely at the legislature. Is. I mean, this is a potential, let's face it, this is a potential uh, target. Absolutely. Like, you know, a terror attack. So you have to have a, you know robust security and protection in, no. this, in the building. But you're saying what? That, Taxpayers are paying too too much for what we have now. We got too much, or yes. So basically, we have thirty eight uh, special provincial constables, and they're essentially police officers policing this precinct. Uh, what I'm saying is, what you see in law enforcement is the notion of a minimum staffing or minimum manning, which means you have to have a certain minimum to operate, and that's fine on a on a you know policing a city twenty four seven. We're policing a one-block radius uh, for a building that's open approximately 80 days a year uh, for, for session. Uh, so what I'm saying is I'm not saying get rid of the special provincial constables. We need them. We need them to be armed. We need them to, to, to perform these policing functions. What I'm saying is we don't need as many. We don't need our police doing security functions, i.e. walking around at 2 in the morning rattling doors. That's a security function. Why not have a security? Checking if they're locked. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and why do we have the same amount of, of you know, officers on shift on a Monday morning when the house is in session versus, you know, December on a Friday evening at two in the morning? That doesn't make sense. And we need to we need to be scaling and we're not scaling. And that's why our overtime is outrageous. It's crazy. OK, scaling would mean that what you'd have some of these officers who would be on call or part time. Well, you would, you would, I mean, look, you're going to have, uh, you know, people, I'm not suggesting people lose their jobs, but you're going to have people uh, leave through attrition, etc. And what I'm suggesting is you have a mix of those armed 
uh, you know, essentially police, special uh, provincial constables, uh, supplemented by security. So you have a mix of them, uh, the security doing security functions, the police doing police functions, and then you up it and, and lower it as the need may be, i.e. if there's a, you know, a, a protest or a demonstration planned, or if we're in session, or if we're having visiting dignitaries, versus if it's, like I said, two in the morning in the winter yeah. and there's nobody here. Okay, I'm speaking to Alan Mullen, he's the chief of staff to Daryl Pluckus, the speaker of the B.C. legislature, about his new report on security at the ledge, which he recommends be scaled back or uh, to save money, right? How much, do, how much do taxpayers spend on security at the B.C. legislature right now? Well, if the uh, the sergeant at arms uh, budget, which which you got to remember, <clears throat> excuse me, includes uh, sessional officers and screening officers and 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 folks working in the hallways, etc. But uh, in 2018-2019, uh, taxpayers were on the hook for 5.7 million dollars. Um, how much? How much could it be saved? How much less could we spend? Well, uh, being on the low end. Uh, if, if people read this report and some of the basic recommendations are put into place, a minimum of $1 million a year in perpetuity, very easily and very quickly. And a lot of that would come from overtime savings. Like around, what, a 20% reduction? Uh, absolutely. Roughly. And, that, and that's just right off the hop. Okay. Um, the fact that, okay, if we're, if we're overspending on security at the legislature, as you describe in this report, is that a reflection of the the outrageous kind of spending that was going on here unchecked for many years oh, be- I, before Daryl Pluckus kind of blew the lid off it? Oh, I think it's it's absolutely a byproduct of that. I mean, it, you, you, you have had these these folks literally uh, going without checks and balances, doing whatever they want, signing off on each other's budgets and, and, and receipts, etc. I mean, that's how you get from $93,000 in a salary to 10 years later, 226000 I mean, that does, it just doesn't happen by accident. Uh, and it's also, yeah. nobody's doing the checks and balances of, well, excuse me, why are we spending $2.18 million in overtime alone uh, in seven financial years? Overtime? In just in overtime. I mean, what overtime do we need? Uh, I've been to, to legislatures across the country and across the U.S. and ask me how much overtime they spend. Zero. Zero. So, you know, to put it in perspective, we're spending 100% more overtime than, than anywhere else. That doesn't make sense to me. And again, we're spending more on overtime at the legislature, policing a one block radius, 80 days a year, than a lot of police departments around you this mentioned, province. You mentioned to me off the air that the overtime bill for the legislature for security is bigger than, did you say the Vancouver Police Department I, overtime bill? I, I did indeed. Wow. Yeah. So when when you look at it like that, I mean, it's very easy for me to say We're here spending and, more on overtime at the legislature than the Vancouver cops are spending on overtime. Right. For, for okay. 38 members that we have. Okay. So when people hear things like that, that, and that's why I just wanted to, you know, people to drill down instead of just taking my word for it or reading through this 56 page report, just take the highlights, take the recommendations. Uh, it is all backed up by facts and exhibits, etc. cetera. Uh, these are the figures people need to remember. This is taxpayers dollars. There's nothing in yeah. it for me, but right, there right. is something in it for me because I'm a British Columbia taxpayer as well. I want to save a million dollars a year. I, I don't want to be paying more overtime than police departments. I don't want the sergeant at arms to get paid more than most police chiefs. That's yeah. that, that doesn't make sense to me, and I don't think it makes sense to a lot of British Columbians. All right, a few more minutes with Alan Mullen, chief of staff to Daryl Pluckus, the speaker of the BC Legislature. We're talking about his new report on the amount of money that's spent on security at the BC Legislature. He says could be cut back by about twenty percent and still keep people safe, right? 
Absolutely. Like, I mean, that's the, you know, obviously you can't have cuts that are going to, they're going to, you know, make people unsafe at the, at the building. No, 100%. I mean, the, the safety and security of everybody in this place, visitors, staff, etc., members, yeah. is is the of utmost importance to the speaker, myself, and everybody here. So that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about, uh, you know, where can we... Because we, we, we did this. The Speaker commissioned this report because, I mean, he knows a little bit something about, uh, you know, uh, criminology and, and law He's enforcement. He's a criminologist. He's a criminologist. For, a professional for, background. For his life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been in law enforcement, so we both sort of took a step back and said, what are we doing here? Why are we, why are we spending all this money? This does, doesn't seem right. So yeah. instead of just taking our word for it, let's go elsewhere and see what they do, see what we can learn, and that's what this report you, is you about. Mentioned, you mentioned to me that when you traveled around to some other jurisdictions to check on how they they do this that you went to places in Canada so you went to other provincial legislatures and you also went to some state uh, assemblies as well that's right and you got did you get more cooperation in in the United States talking to officials there than you did in Canada like you were telling me that some some Canadian parliaments didn't want to talk to you they didn't cooperate with you yeah I mean some some uh, well first of all the US uh, states were, were fantastic and uh, you know totally open transparent please come uh, and they, they could not have been more helpful uh, what I did find in in, in a lot of because this is all pre, pre-pandemic when you did this trip of, of course. course yes this, yeah. this was uh, almost a year ago now yeah uh, but what I found in some Canadian jurisdictions was uh, they just weren't interested in participating they, they were I think they were a little bit uh concerned or nervous about me attending their their legislature and talking to their their staff etc the culture is this sort of reflect the culture of secrecy generally in some of these parliament buildings well I in mean can, in our country they seem to be more open and transparent in the United States than we are well I mean I can certainly speak to the open uh, and, and transparency in the United States because I've been there I, I mean I can't be saying anything positive or negative about about the Canadian jurisdictions because I haven't been there and I think that would be unfair of me uh, but uh you know Obviously, I did get to see and go to two Canadian jurisdictions. The rest, for for a number okay. of different reasons, couldn't couldn't have me attend. Let me ask you, just in the th- uh, two or three minutes we got left here, um, it's been two years since the spending scandal. The legislature erupted. People will, may remember how Craig James, the clerk of the House at the time, Gary Lenz, the Sergeant at Arms, were were marched out of the building. There was a an investigation that went on. What is they both resigned now? What is the status? of this now is there still a police investigation going on there is still a very very active police investigation going on i know it's sort of a little bit of the uh, you know out of sight out of mind kind of thing uh they have not stopped uh i could not be more impressed with the with the work that the rcmp uh, have been doing and continue to do it's a non-stop project for them so all I, i can't really get into it because it is an active police investigation but all i all i will say is it is ongoing it has not stopped. Uh, they are working tirelessly on it, and I would say uh, the speaker and I are are very confident, uh, you know, that we will be we will be uh, hearing something from the police, you know, relatively yeah, soon. Yeah, but there's uh, still two special prosecutors in place there. Yes, there are indeed. Yeah, these things seem to take years sometimes, and we've seen previous investigations drag on literally for years and years. We're into like two years since this thing broke up now. Broke now. I mean, is this another one that's just going to drag on for multiple years? Or, but you seem, you seem to think like it's going to wrap, wrap up sooner than that. Yeah. I mean, I'm hopeful. Obviously, I don't speak for the RCMP or for their timelines, but I'm, I am very hopeful. I mean, it's already been, uh, over two years actually since we, we brought the file to the RCMP. Uh, we've been yeah. working tirelessly with them. Uh, they've been working nonstop on this. So I'm, I'm very hopeful, as is the speaker. <clears throat> and we're very confident too. Um, you know, and again, 
there's nothing in this for us but doing the right thing. So I think people just need to be patient. Uh, there will be, there will be stuff happening here. People will remember the the famous wood splitter, the sort of globe trotting travel bills, uh, the pension top ups. You know, spending on stuff like jewelry and clothing and stuff. And people were shocked by it two years ago. Has that stuff been cleaned up? Alert mostly like is there any of that any of that kind of spending still going on or have you guys cut it out i mean there's there's so many more checks and balances in place now and 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 thank you thank you thank you to to daryl pleck as the speaker uh you know and obviously with the assistance of the other departments the clerk's office the you know financial services and and everybody here that works at the ledge there's so many even just the the basics of signing authority uh you know if you're my subordinate you can't be signing my expenses which was what we were seeing that stopped. Uh, there's so many new checks and balances in place for yeah. staff here, for, uh, you know, table officers and for members, uh, you know, and it's not restrictive. It's just the way it should have always been. It just wasn't. So, you know, we, a lot of things have changed. We got one minute left. The pandemic is going on. The legislature is not in session this week, but it's back next week. It's back uh, next right? Monday. How yeah. is that working? It's great. It's got so, a minute. so we've got about uh, 20 to 24 members, including the speaker in the chamber, uh, socially distanced. And then the rest of the 87 members are attending via Zoom from their, their home writing or their office. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's working it's out actually, pretty well. It's working great. And hats off to everybody here at the ledge, Hansard Services, the clerk's office, speaker's office for making it work. There was a lot of test sessions that happened. And uh, I'm shocked how well it's working. And, and we're the leaders in the world on, on that. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure as always. All right. All right. Welcome back. Mike Smith here with you today. We are uh, standing by for uh, live coverage of a news conference by Premier John Horgan, Health Minister Adrian Dix. They have an, a health care announcement. I'm sure they'll have the latest on uh, COVID-19 numbers in British Columbia. When that starts, we hope to bring that uh, to you live. Uh, we talked earlier on the show today about some of the new rules in British Columbia for visits to BC care homes. And I got to tell you, people have been separated from their loved ones for so long. We have, we have seen heartbreaking stories of residents of care homes deteriorate their mental health, their physical health as they're separated from loved ones. New rules in place in British Columbia now to allow limited visits with loved ones in care homes. We'll talk more about that on the show today as well. Also, just standing, as I mentioned, standing by for Premier John Horgan when he starts speaking at that news conference. We hope to bring that to you live. But first, let's go to my guest, Carly Weeks, the very fine health reporter at the Globe and Mail. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Carly. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. I continue to be really impressed with all the work the work you do over there at the Globe and Mail uh, following this crisis here in Canada. What is some of the latest that we're seeing on uh, COVID numbers uh, in across the country here in Canada? Yeah, a really positive trend. So I'll try and stay positive for a second before I go into the negative. Okay. Um, but basically, you know, the, throughout most parts of Canada, the curve is flat. You know, there's a couple of exceptions. For instance, um, you know, among migrant farm workers in Ontario, which has become a real problem similar to sort of the you know disaster that unfolded in long-term care we're now seeing a lot of migrant farm workers testing positive and and the government kind of you know making a lot of missteps along the way um 
while that's it's, it is great to see that overall our numbers are down and the number of elderly people who are getting sick and dying from COVID is going down, that's great. Um, there is concern that as more and more people sort of go out and be social and see how great we're doing here in Canada, that they may get lulled into some false sense of security that, you know, the risks are over, that COVID's kind of behind us when that's really not the case. Right. And in terms of the migrant farm workers, that's an interesting angle. What are what are officials doing to prevent further spread among among those people? Yeah, well, I mean, B.C. has um, had had a couple of instances, I think, earlier on where you had some you know, workers in, in factories. And I think at some among some migrant farm workers that they've really um, managed to squelch that in Ontario. It's been a much different story. So there's been a lot of sort of back and forth squabbling about what needs to be done. Um, for instance, there was a big controversy because the chief, province's chief you know, top doctor said that people who test positive, these migrant farm workers who test positive, can continue working as long as they're, you know, staying away from their colleagues, which, which raised a lot of um, concerns among infectious disease doctors. In fact, there's been a petition going around to make the province back down on that because basically it's it's saying that you know the lives of these people um there's concern you know that they're being treated as you know second third maybe even fourth class citizens um and being treated as expendable so they're the um now the the region's top doctor is now saying he won't allow that to happen that these people will have to be separated but i think it just speaks to these larger systemic issues you know we've seen throughout this pandemic that the people who are being hit the hardest are people who tend to be racialized people who live in uh, low areas with low um, uh, low incomes. And, you know, we need to do a much better job of, of making sure those people are taken care of. Okay, one of the, I think, the key indicators as we track this pandemic is, is not only the infection rate and the number of positive cases, but the hospitalization rate, and especially people who are really, really sick and get admitted to ICU. Uh, intensive care units. We've seen some in very encouraging numbers here for the last several weeks in British Columbia. What's it like around the rest of the country in terms of hospitalization numbers from COVID? Yeah, we have seen a lot of encouraging news elsewhere as well. And even, you know, sort of the the, the bad students in the class, you know, Quebec and Ontario have, have also really started to catch up and they're posting a lot more positive results as well. You know, with lots of hospital capacity, you know, the ICU capacity is going way down, which is really great to see, especially, you know, when you look at, you know, south of the border, for instance, at the, at the problems they're having there. So that is really good news to see that we've we've done a really good job of sort of cleaning up our act that way. Uh, yeah. But again, just that caution that, you know, if that doesn't mean this is over and we're out of the woods. We've just been able to sort of, we've done all of this hard work to get to this point. And so there's right. this, uh, you know, need to keep that up. Okay. And that, and, and when we compare it to what's going on in the United States, and you briefly touched on that, Carly, I mean, every time we look at the numbers from states like Arizona, uh, Florida, Texas, Include and across right across the border from here from us here in British Columbia in Washington State, we see alarming numbers. Uh, how do we compare to what's going on in the United States, and why are they having so much trouble when we seem to be doing better? Well, it is really terrifying when you look at what's going on in the U.S. right now. Um, a couple of things that really make us distinct at this point, and this is one of the things that infectious disease experts hope stay true. 
Uh, a lot of states there either reopened way too quickly or, you know, didn't wait until their sort of curve was flat enough. I mean, California is a good example of a state that actually locked down early. That leadership did a lot of things like, you know, mandate mask wearing. Uh, but then they kind of, you know, maybe threw open the doors. You know, they had indoor dining allowed and they had a lot more of those sorts of activities allowed that, you know, we know that indoor transmission is higher risk than outdoor transmission, for instance, and they've now had to sort of back down. So basically across the board, there is a feeling that they, that a lot of those states that are now seeing these surges really didn't do the things that were necessary. They, and they still don't have the testing capacity in place. You can see that by the fact that they're posting such high positivity rates. If you have like, you know, 20% of all people being tested for COVID in Florida testing positive, that means you're missing a ton of people with COVID, um, all those people who have mild symptoms, who may not show up for testing, for instance. You want to have a positivity rate around 5% or lower. So there's so much that is going wrong in the U.S., and they need to fix that. And it serves as a, as a reminder to us here in Canada. You know, we can't be complacent because yeah. you, know, you can have a pretty flat curve like they did in California, and then, you know, you open up too quickly or you, you know, abandon some of those things. Um, and you see problems. I mean, for instance, Alberta, just a couple of days ago, they, were, they had um, outbreaks linked to four different restaurants in the city of Edmonton. So it's not like, you know, these things are impossible here either. Right. Of course, the border is still shut down, at least to non-essential travel. Do you anticipate the border restrictions remaining in place as they are? Or there, could there be a, a tighter kind of lockdown at the border? I think it would look, I mean, I think that the Trudeau government would get so much pushback from within Canada if they did decide to open the border. You know, there's yeah. obviously trade considerations and, you know, there are what our closest ally and all of those things. But, you know, when you have basically what there's like raging forest fires, you know, going on in the United States and you open up the border to allow some of that spread here, um, I think there's way too much pushback. You know, the Ontario Premier has commented in recent days he does not want to see that border open anytime soon so i think politically uh it would be too damaging for us to um for the trudeau government to make that call speaking to global mail health reporter carly weeks you've done tremendous work on the spread of covid in care homes and nursing homes across canada which has been absolutely tragic uh, it's it's encouraging to see some progress being being made there. Here in British Columbia, our provincial health officer just allowed very limited visits to care homes with loved ones, and there have been heartbreaking stories. We hear them every day from people who are separated from loved ones, from spouses, from their parents. And now we will start to get some extremely limited visits to care homes in B.C. so uh, residents can be reunited with loved ones after many weeks and months. What is the status of care homes across the country generally right now? Well, there, the number of outbreaks has really come down and, the, you know, it's, it's yeah. taken way too long to get here. But we have seen that, the, you know, the horrific numbers that were being posted a few months ago have now really come down. Things are largely under control. There's still a lot of problems that remain and we can't forget about those. You know, once this sort of tragedy is behind us, you know, so to speak, like we have to get ready for the fall. We have to also address longstanding issues at long-term care. So that's, that is, you know, really important, you know, and again, I, I single out, um, you know, the folks in Ontario because they've taken a lot of heat for their uh, visitor policies. You know, they're required, they, up until recently, anyone who wanted to visit a, you know, someone at a care home had to, you know, test negative for COVID within the last few days, even though the, that test is somewhat meaningless because, you know, as soon as you test negative, 
the next day you could, again, you know, you could get COVID and then pass it on. And, you know, the mandating of wearing masks when you're visiting your loved one from a distance outside, the loved ones weren't able to recognize their their caregivers and things like that. So it's been, it has been a real mess the whole way along. And I think um, the experts that I'm speaking to are now saying, okay, look, we've made a lot of mistakes. We need to fix this and address these problems before we get a second wave in the fall or winter. Um, We're not out of the woods yet. Let's get ready now so we don't have any kind of replay of what we saw earlier this year happen ever again. All right, welcome back. My guest is Carly Weeks, uh, health reporter at The Globe and Mail, as we continue to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada, and especially as it applies to care homes across the country. Here in BC, we've seen some limited visiting opportunities now for people to be reunited with their loved ones in BC care homes. That will be a relief for a lot of people who've been separated from loved ones for many, many weeks, but it's very, very strict, the rules on the visits to care homes. Phone me and tell me your experience now with care homes in BC and being separated from your loved ones and what do you think about these visiting rules 604-280-9898 is the number 604-280-9898 star 9898 toll free on your cell let's go to Rob on the open line in Kelowna hi Rob hi uh, just not about the care homes but the COVID thing the thing I got an issue with is a lot of these Americans are saying they're moving to Alaska and they come in, they go into restaurants, they start bragging about, oh, yeah, I said, I'm not even really going there. They should have proof that they're actually moving there. Have you witnessed have that? A, your, have you seen any of that yourself? No, but I've, uh, what I've heard, I've talked to people, they've heard about it, and it's like what they do is that's a loophole they find, and they should put it at the border. Guess what? If you're going to Alaska, you can fly there, get your stuff moved by a U-Haul or something, because this is like a, it's like a joke to us. Like the Americans say, yeah, these Canadians are stupid. Okay, thank, thank you for the call. Carly, we've heard stories like this. There's been some reporting on it as well that maybe some American tourists are trying to kind of sneak across the border into Canada and going on vacation here. Have you heard anything like that? You know, there has been some concern about these kinds of things happening. I mean, at the same time, I've also talked to some medical officers who say a lot of these things are based sort of in rumor. You know, they've been hearing, you know, Americans filling up hotels uh, and these rumors are spreading around Ontario, for instance, and they're simply not true. That being said, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult at the same time. There's are these rules in place. They're trying to enforce them, but there are some exceptions that are being made, for instance, for immediate family members and things like that. So right. it's not as though there's zero risk from the border at this point. You know, we can't pretend there's zero risk, and there probably will be for some time, particularly if it, if it opens anytime soon. Yeah, I think that probably there have been some incidents of American tourists coming into the country, uh, maybe not telling the truth to a border officer, which is a serious offense, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it may be happening, but I, I just wonder about the, the scale of it. Like, like you said, mm-hmm, I, th- I think there's, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of rumors and, and maybe some kind of local urban legends on this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying it's not happening, but I'm just wondering if it's happening on, on very large numbers. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Peter on the line in Delta. Hi, Peter. Good morning, Michael. Hi. I uh, just wanted to let you know, like, I had a letter from my, uh, I'm a caregiver for a senior that has dementia, and I got a letter from the care home saying that I could even actually take her out for the day. Uh, oh. We can take her out to the courtyard. I could take her home 
for the day as long as I don't keep her overnight because if I keep her overnight, she would have to go back into quarantine for 14 days. But I can take her out for the day, go visit a park, go do whatever I want. Like it literally shocked the you-know-what out of me because it's like literally against everything I'm hearing on the radio. So I don't know what's going on. Okay, well, that's that's very interesting. Now, would you would she be limited to contact with you alone? Would you just one person she'd be able to come in contact with under those circumstances? Is that how it would work? Okay, I guess he's not there anymore. But Carly, what do you think about that? I mean, how are other provinces doing this, like visits and care homes? You know, I think that I, I've not heard of... Uh, caregivers being able to take their loved ones out of the care yeah, home. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it, it sounds on the face of it in this new world that we're living in, oh, that sounds a little risky. But if it's done safely and if the province has done it well, I mean, BC has an excellent track record on these kinds of things. And so I think they're um, encouraging people to do these sorts of things as long as they're in the rules. And if you're being safe and you're in those rules, we are at a stage where you can enjoy some of these freedoms. I mean, we may be back in like more of a lockdown situation months from now. So if they're saying it's okay, as long as you're safe, then I think, you know, that's a, that's a really good thing. And I think that it's yeah. going to be a welcome relief. Squeeze in another call here. Eileen in North Vancouver. Hi. Hi. Um, your, one of your questions was to um, whether we've seen um, American tourists coming up from the border. Yes. Uh, claiming they're going to Alaska, but they do make tourist stopovers in Whistler, an area that I work. Mm. Um, so we, and I hear it as a regular conversation amongst my clients, is that they get a lot of American tourists claiming to go to Alaska and just hanging out in Whistler. Really? Okay. So yeah. you hear, they, so people are sort of openly admitting that? Yeah, actually, i got to give uh, the Fairmont Hotel a big shout-out because I, when I had this conversation with them, they said that they actively go around their parking lot looking for American license plates. Wow. And if they have American gas, they actually immediately cancel their reservations and turn them away. Eileen, thanks for that call. Let's squeeze in one more. Henry in Nanaimo. you got to go fast, though, Henry. you got a minute left. Go ahead. Hi there. I live in Nanaimo, and I just got passed by a car from Alaska. And how are they on the island passing through? Well, thanks for the call. I think you sometimes maybe totally can't judge the book by its cover or a car by its license plate because <laughs> people are allowed into the country if they are essential workers or if they are family members, like Carly said. So we'll see. We continue to hear stories like this, Carly, and we continue to be mm-hmm. interested in it. But anyway, listen, keep up the great work, and thank you for coming on again today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, welcome back. A very special conversation now with my next guests, and it's a very timely issue with the current imprisonment in China of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They were detained in China and are now accused of espionage in apparent retaliation by China against Canada. After Canadian officials arrested Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou for extradition, to the United States. I can tell you that story is a very familiar one to my next two guests, Kevin and Julia Garrett. They are a BC couple who were also arrested and detained in China for apparent and apparent retaliation by China against Canada. They detail their incredible experience in a book, Two Tears on the Window, It describes their true story of their 775-day abduction and imprisonment in China as pawns in a political power play between China, Canada, 
and the United States. I'm very pleased to welcome both of them, Kevin and Julia Garrett. Hello there. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, good to be here today. Hi, thank you to both of you, Kevin and Julia. I really appreciate your time today. Um, Kevin, let me go to you first. Your, your story is an, an incredible one, and I think very certainly timely with the two Michaels right now and their situation. Tell me, let's start at the beginning. When did when did you and Julia uh, go to China? You lived there for quite a long time, didn't you? Yeah, we lived there for 30 years. We first went in wow. 1984 as teachers, and then we moved into other areas like community development and uh, partnering with local people. Yeah, what, Julia, what what kind of work were you guys doing there? Uh, teaching. I was working at the university, different universities. We lived in seven different cities. So, And then in that area, we found an existing community need and tried to partner with uh, locals to see how we could help them to solve that need and with training and then resourcing them to start up and then sort of letting it go. And really, it loved it, every bit yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, what part of China were you living in there, Kevin? Well, uh, as Julie mentioned, we just we lived in seven different cities, but the last city we lived in is a place called Dandong, which is in northeast China, uh, bordering North Korea. And that's where we started a coffee house, and we worked with an orphanage, and we are doing aid work into North Korea. Yeah, were you doing some mission? Was it missionary work you were doing? I know, I know you're inv- inv- active in your church and stuff, right? Well, we are definitely active in our church in that, yeah. but we went there, you know, as Christians, and, uh, you know, we don't call it that work, but... We we just did we did what we could. We ran a coffee shop. We did aid work, and uh, right. we tried to be friendly to everyone we met. I think living at your life as a Christian is just giving an answer to everyone for the hope that is in you, and also just really pouring in in partnership uh, to to see things develop that are better than the way you approached them when right. you first arrived, right. and that includes externally and internally. Okay, let's go back, guys, to August 2014, and when you were uh, suddenly uh, detained and arrested there by Chinese authorities. Kevin, can you describe how that all happened? Well, we were invited out to dinner uh, through through a friend, but to, to meet someone we didn't know, they wanted to talk about their daughter who was wanted to study in Canada, actually, at the University of Toronto, where we both graduated from. And uh, so we went to dinner. The daughter never showed up. They said, oh, she had a toothache. And it was kind of a, a little bit of an odd dinner, uh, and then as we, we first came into the restaurant, the, the lobby was completely empty. And then when we came down after the dinner, the lobby was full of people. And I, you know, Julia said to me, oh, it looks like a wedding. We should get out of the way. We thought, you know, why are all these people here? But it was actually, you know, with cameras and things like that. And actually it was an abduction, not a wedding. And, uh, you know, found out they're quite different. Wow. So it was not a wedding. This, they had come to, they had come to what, arrest you, Julia? Uh, actually, it wasn't an arrest. It was an abduction. Oh. I wasn't wow. formally arrested until almost eight months later. Okay, what happened to you? Where did what, what happened? Where did they take you? What happened? So after uh, we were just separated and thrown into these black sort of sedan cars with a, I was you know a bunch of men and didn't see Kevin again for months. So we had oh. no idea what was really going on. But what ended up happening was after stopping in at a local Ministry of State Security, which is equivalent to Chinese. FBI. Uh, they they took everything away, threw us back in the cars, and Kevin obviously went a different direction than me, so I didn't know, but I went out to what was called in by many a black jail, which mean it, means it doesn't exist. And that is China's uh, secret place where you're hidden away, away from absolutely anything, and put in isolation, lived in one room for six months, lights on 24-7, two guards posted inside the room with little notebooks writing down everything. 
uh, then six hours plus of interrogation a day. And I didn't know, but Kevin and I were actually the only people in that particular black jail, but they kept us set apart and didn't answer any of our questions about each other. So we really didn't know if each other was alive or dead. The conditions there was very, very, very difficult, especially psychologically. Sounds absolutely terrifying. Kevin, can you describe what was going through your mind as you were as you were abducted like that and separated from your wife? Well, part of it was like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? You must have the wrong people. And then, um, you know, and then as it went on, I'm thinking, you really have the wrong people, but maybe is, why, why are you taking us? And they, when they started saying you're a spy, I thought, like, how did they get us so wrong? And I, as it went on for weeks and then months and then almost two, over two years, uh, I never really knew about the reason why until actually I was released after 775 days. Okay, now at the time, uh, back in, in Canada, there was an arrest of, of a Chinese resident who was working in Canada yeah. and for extradition to the United States, right? A, a man named Su Bin. Yes, exactly. And, right. um, you know, we didn't, I didn't know anything about that until afterwards, but, uh, you know, he was arrested at the request of the U.S. and later extradited and, and sentenced as a spy. And they took us, China took us because they wanted to trade. And right. but, Know that they kept saying, "Oh, your government knows what to do," you know. So at consular visits, I said, "Just tell them to work harder." But it just like I didn't know why or what was going on. I could only guess, but I never guessed that. But our families knew that from the beginning, and they were uh, working with that in mind as they were trying to release us, and knew it was a basically a political hostage taking. Yeah, but even with the when we were had consular visits, which you know towards the end is only once a month, every thirty days, they said I couldn't talk about the case. And or else we won't, you won't see the consular officials again. So I never, again, I never knew why. Speaking to Julia and Kevin Garrett about their incredible 775-day abduction and imprisonment in, in China, which began, this, uh, this saga began back in August of 2014. Julia, when you were in, in, uh, imprisoned in China, what were the conditions like? How were you treated? So I think that, I lived in China for a long time, and so I think part of how you're treated depends on how you behave. And so I took that into account, and I, I really had to look at it from that perspective, and I actually believe that helped. Obviously, psychologically, six hours of interrogation every day, being accused of a spy, trying to undermine me, undermine everything I'd ever done, and see it in the light of I was actually collecting state secrets, had a huge toll. You'd, you'd wake up all through the night just, like, thinking of random answers to their interrogation questions. They have strategies for interrogation that are very frightening. Um, and also the unknown about, is this going to end? Is this going to go on? Is this going to end with execution? Is this going to end with a life sentence? So I think a lot of those psychological, the trauma was extreme and it never stopped. And the other main factor that made it very, very difficult about the conditions. I mean, the food was just the food, and I knew it would be just basic Chinese food, so I just was okay with that. I mean, it wasn't great. I was longing for something else. But I think the one of the worst things was time and uncertainty, because time starts moving in seconds, and all you're doing is thinking, how am I going to get through a 10-hour day? And you that's why you notice in the book we wrote it in days, day one, day 10, day 20, and we actually thought, in day units and we're back out here and we're like why did we do that because people here are thinking weeks and months and years 
but that shows that the the trauma and the microness of absolutely everything, you know, it really affects your way of. All right, welcome back as we continue my conversation with my guests Julia and Kevin Garrett about their incredible 775 day ordeal in China when they were abducted and imprisoned, accused of espionage. It's detailed in their on their in their book, Two Tears on the Window. Kevin, let me go back to you. We heard Julia's description of uh, what it was like, uh, the conditions in in China. I know you guys were separated, which must have been terrible and very frightening. What was it like for you? Well, for me, I mean, the first six months for both of us were much the same in one room, interrogated, you know, hours every day, the plus homework, never knowing anything, not, not being able to talk to anyone, no phone calls, nothing like that, no lawyer for almost a year. Uh, but after six months, they moved me to a, a local prison. They call it a detention center, about 900 inmates in the, in the center. Plus, I was in a, a cell of 14 people. And uh, it, that was, in one sense, better because I could talk to people. But it really, it was worse because it was the stench in, the, in there, the food, which didn't come all the time, uh, never leaving the cage. Food is just slopped in through a, you know, a hole in the cell door into a plastic bowl, and you share that with other people. But almost a third of the time, it never came. You, you run to the cell door because you hear a sound. You think, oh, what is that? Is that the food cart or is that something else? And, uh, you know, people are just desperate for any kind of information. But you just sit in that cell all day long, 24-7. I left once a month for 30 minutes. And that's, that's it. Then there's an outdoor cage attached to the cell that lets you outside sometimes, certainly not all the time. And it was very okay. small. About 15 uh, paces by five and a half paces was the size of a cell for 14 people. Wow, incredible, Kevin. Uh, we, we both, we've heard you both describe the conditions and this constant kind of interrogation that was going on and the accusations that you were, were spies. Did they, did they ever present any evidence against you or charge you with anything? Well, they said, because we, we ran a coffee shop, you know, they said the people who came to our coffee shop were passing information on to them. Well, what I would pass on to them was like, try this coffee or why don't you take a look at this uh, tourist site, things like that. And, um, and they, really not much. Yeah, and they said, like, I taught international trade and economics at the local university, and that was to gather information on people who are going to be working in Chinese businesses and to gather information about their North Korea strategy. So basically, all the normal things that we did and our aid work, they accused us of, of putting chips in the baby hats, and that's how we were tracking where things might go in China and North Korea. All things we had never thought about, but when it's misconstrued, uh, you start to from which perspective they're looking at it and all of a sudden they're making something they're growing a case out of things that were just the ordinary things of our everyday life and they also try to undermine kevin like spies never tell their wives so maybe he's a spy and he's never told you like they use so many strategies that you they try to get you to question yourself to question your motives to question everything you do okay kevin how did you finally get home to bc how did you guys get out of there well, my trial was April 20th, 2016, and uh, a closed trial, so I didn't know, I couldn't talk to anyone, I couldn't even talk to my lawyer at the trial, which was very difficult. He said at the end, well, we should know something in two or three weeks, but knowing China, I thought, well, three to six weeks, maybe. But almost five months later, uh, they called me back to court very suddenly, there was a verdict hearing, read an eight-page verdict, pronounced me guilty of espionage and spying, and then uh, within hours, I was deported back to Canada. So, so technically, I'm serving my sentence here. I was sentenced to eight years. Julie, what happened to you? Yeah, so uh, after the trial, um, I was 
I said, so do I get a paper saying I'm free now? And they like, no, we don't produce anything. So I basically was in limbo. And then I said, well, what can I do? They let me uh, go back for a brief two-week trip. And I think it was a test to see if I would start sharing negative things about China. I came back again after the two-week trip. And eventually they released me only just several weeks before uh, Kevin was released, saying your husband's going to be in prison for a long time. Go home and earn some money and pay for his prison. Because we had to pay about five to $800 every month for him to live in the prison. Oh, my goodness. When were you finally reunited? It was uh, September 15, 2016, so almost four years ago, and a couple of months ago, it be four years, which also happens to be our oldest daughter's birthday. So I, I actually wow. traveled for this for her birthday that day. What, when, where were you reunited? Back in, back in B.C.? Yeah, in Vancouver. And, uh, wow. you know, border security people and everything... You know, it was all arranged ahead of time, and they were fantastic. They were really, really good. And uh, one of the embassy officials uh, traveled with me, as well as our American lawyer, um, who really did everything for free and was really helpful. Julie, what was that like to finally see Kevin again and your family again? I mean, there's no words for it. And I think that's why we just long and ache for the Michaels right now, because it's just this huge hug you just have your arms around everyone in your family together again and it's something you thought might have never happened and it did happen and you're so thankful and you continue just being grateful every day that when you get a word from your kids or you see them again yeah it's just this incredible moment of joy yeah we're very grateful to be back and to be together and to to keep working and serving and you know praying for the michaels and yeah we long uh, for that whatever we can encourage people to write letters to the government and even to their families to encourage them we, we just and thousands have, of people prayed for us, and we, we just are really trying to get people to do the same for the Michaels. Wrote letters and prayed on their behalf, because from this point of view, what, what, what can we do? But prayers actually travel faster than letters, and that we're just believing that somehow we're holding them up by prayer. Guys, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure to speak to both of you and, and the incredible ordeal that you went through. I'm very pleased that it had the happy ending for you and that you're back home here Thank in you. British Columbia. Thank you. And I hope that one day we can say the same for Michael Spavor and Michael Michael yeah. Kovrig. Where, where can people buy your book, by the way? Is that available well, everywhere Amazon, online? The Amazon, Kindle, Kobo, or just go to our website, twotearsonthewindow.com. And uh, that'll tell you everything. Give more of the story there as well. Thank you to both of you for coming on today. Thank Are you. you very glad to.